Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Dr. James Gordon. Before we get to our chat, I want to give a quick shout out to Chase Sapphire, who helped make today's episode possible. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation. And traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, there are some pretty sweet perks though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. For some travel inspo, head to goop.com and check out the Montecito guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. And I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Dr. James Gordon is a psychiatrist, founder of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, and author of The Transformation. He is widely recognized for using self-awareness, self-care, and group support to heal psychological trauma. And naturally, today, we're talking about trauma and how we can heal from it. Dr. Gordon explains what happens to not only our mental state, but our physical body when we experience psychological trauma and the ripple effect it can have on our intimate relationships. Dr. Gordon shares techniques like soft belly breathing and shaking and dancing and how each of them play a part in the healing process. And he explains how trauma will happen to all of us at some point and to know that we have the capacity to understand and heal ourselves. 
It's moving through, once again, bringing up emotions that have been shut down, uh, bringing energy to bodies that have been depleted by trauma or by depression or by held-in anger. And it's just opening us up and giving us a new sense of freedom. Let's get to my chat with Dr. James Gordon. Thanks for having me. I mean, thanks for not. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, tell me a little bit about... <laughs> but you should tell me a little bit about... All I know now is you went to St. Paul's but, and you have St. two Paul's. little kids. I have and... two little kids. Yeah, no. And I'm, I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> live in Los Angeles. And I stayed up way too late talking to my brother, actually, about trauma. Really? We stayed up until we were talking about our childhoods and... My brother lost his husband two years and change ago, and so and he he's had some other experiences in his life, and so we were at, we were just talking about does he have trauma? Where is it in his body? But congratulations on this book. I read a lot of books, some that I recommend more vociferously than others. Ooh, that's a word. But I have to say that I this is a there are obviously other books about trauma. But I think this is was so well done. It's so well organized. It's so accessible. And I also think that one of the sort of the opening gambits of the book is that trauma is inescapable. And we put it in this. We have an idea of it in our culture that it is the provenance of war veterans and people of extreme childhood abuse and neglect. But as you recount in the book, it affects it will affect or has affected, most likely has affected and will affect all of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like 60% of adults experienced significant abuse or neglect, which is probably low. Because I think that so many people, I don't know if this has been your experience, but so many people I think don't even know what to name what they experienced and or they are successful in their life and theoretically thriving in many ways. And so it feels kind of shitty to be like, oh, well, I had this thing happen to me. Yeah. I think what happens a lot of time is people start developing symptoms or they don't understand exactly why they're feeling the way they're feeling, why they're so suspicious or have difficulty with relationships or why certain situations totally disable them. doesn't make kind of rational sense. And that's often where they begin the, the journey to discover, well, what did happen? Why am I the way I am? Why am I so predisposed to have difficulties in these situations? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's midway through the book when you talk about being in front of a group of primarily women, well-dressed, middle-class, upper-middle-class, successful, who are sort of coming to grips with childhood experiences and probably experiences that happened to I mean as you see from the me too movement I don't know anyone who who didn't have a me too moment yeah. right and that they're suddenly sort of facing these things that again is there an age or a time when these things start to emerge that we think we've sort of handled or controlled you know I, I think they often emerge in intimate relationships or at times of crisis at work. It's usually some, some kind of crisis that evokes that earlier trauma. Mm -hmm. One of the, the women I write about in the book, in that, in that particular chapter, it was when she lost her job. And it wasn't that she couldn't get another job. She was you know, extremely highly qualified and bright and everything else. 
But it, it sort of threw everything up into the air, and she began to wonder, well, why am I so distressed? I have a bunch of offers of other jobs, but somehow this is hitting very deep. And what she began to discover uh, in the workshop and doing the techniques that uh, I describe in the transformation is that early on she'd been really, if not rejected, certainly neglected by her parents who were paying much more attention to her brother and to each other. And her job was really to take care of them. And that's how she managed to survive and to you know, have an important role in the family, but nobody was taking care of her. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of early abandonment was still there inside her. And losing the job brought it all up. Mm -hmm. She felt the same kind of rejection, even though the situation was very different and she was an adult, it just plunged her back into that childhood feeling. Right. And you can imagine in a conversation with a therapist or a friend that it's hard to say, oh, well, that's trauma, right? So, like, how do you, in your expansive work in this very nebulous concept, is it is it the thing or is it the way that it's embodied or experienced? Like, what what is trauma and then how do you see it manifest? Well, trauma, the, the word simply means injury, mm -hmm. and injury to the body, mind, or spirit. And as, you know, as, as I said and as you said, it's, it's going to come to everyone. So I think what happens is when something comes up in our life, if we have a little bit of a chance to reflect, if we can get quiet for even for a few minutes, then thoughts and feelings will start to arise and will start to make the connections. That's why I start off both in the transformation and when I work with people is teaching them how to meditate mm -hmm. so that they can come into balance so they're not just preoccupied with things that are sort of banging around in their heads or that they're ruminating about, but they have a time to look at what's going on a little bit more clearly, to feel what's happening in the body, to see the thoughts that are playing or tormenting them in their mind, and then automatically in that space of openness, they will start to uh, experience what had happened before. Right. And I want to go through all of the exercises that you have in the book because they're all incredible. But I also think what's interesting and what seems to emerge is that, and I'm, I'd be curious to know how many people come to you or you experience in the wider world because I know you go out into community and do trauma work for people who are victims of poverty or global weather events, how often do people even know what they're working on? Like how many of them can point to an event and say, this was the event versus how many people are sort of working with this? I just don't know what, what's happening. Well, I, I think that people who are immediately affected by an event, for example, we're working in Broward County, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where there were the school shootings mm -hmm. in Parkland, and working with the whole county. Everybody in that county knows they were affected by the shootings. And that also, as they begin to contemplate that and begin to experience what that's done, they also become aware of other trauma in their lives. So the focus is on an event that's obviously traumatizing. For other people, for example, the, the, the women we were talking about earlier, the group of 50 or so women who are coming to a talk on trauma, it's more like, I don't know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, something is happening, and I'm not sure what it is, and I'd like to find out more about it. So in the absence of a very dramatic event, 
it's more puzzling to people. And they usually come with some concern that may not be directly related to trauma. So it may be headaches that are not going away. It may be anxiety or difficulty sleeping or difficulty focusing or I can't get close. This is the fourth relation, serious relationship I've had, and and I don't seem to be able to make it in any of these relationships, and and I don't exactly know why. So they come with that kind of open question, and it's not the trauma that brings them it often. It's the symptoms. It's the things Mm -hmm. that they can't explain. One of the really beautiful points of the book, too, I think, is that trauma can be our biggest teacher, right? Like it's the thing that that guides us, often crystallizes our purpose, and and can be the foundation of some of the, the most important leaders, which I think, too, you know, it's hard. Obviously, many people are victims of terrible circumstances in their life, some that are completely out of their control. And it's too easy to say, oh, well, there. I mean, you, you cite, if you don't, can I read you a passage sure, of your please. book? Okay. You're talking first about Buddha, Abraham, Moses, Jesus's family fled to preserve him from slaughter, the prophet Muhammad, he was orphaned. And then you write, The same understanding comes alive in the stories of modern women and men who have transformed their suffering into lives of heroism and compassion. Harriet Tubman, the whipped and degraded slave, escaped the South only to return again and again to bring hundreds more to freedom and lead a movement for racial and gender equality. An overprivileged Franklin Roosevelt met the challenges of paralyzing polio with unexpected courage and grace and became a president of uncommon purpose and vision. A committed and angry Nelson Mandela, growing in humility and wisdom through 27 years of harsh imprisonment, was a world-inspiring exemplar of truth and reconciliation. Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse was gunned down at the Sandy Hook School, has become an advocate for mental health services for children who are, like her son's murderer, troubled and violent. Which I think, not to say, oh, if nothing terrible happens to you, you'll never do anything that changes the world. But I think when we're looking at the context of terrible things happen to everyone, it does seem to be if people go there, sort of the lever, a lever, right? Like a a powerful lesson and lever for transmutation. It is. It's It's exactly that. It breaks down all the structures of our lives up till that point. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, when I was 12 years old, I was fascinated by Roosevelt and his polio and what happened to him. And I think many of us are. We we understand this. This is one of the reasons we like to read about children or adults when we're kids or like to see films about people who get in big trouble and somehow meet that challenge and come through it and in a in a way that's shining and transformed. Mm-hmm. This is a, a deep truth of humanity. And pretty much every aboriginal people that I that I've ever spent time with or read about understands this. We've lost this understanding in the modern world. This is the nature of things. Mm-hmm. And if we understand that our trauma can be a, a school of wisdom, not to deny the extraordinary pain that we may go through, then it does change the nature of what's happening to us. It's not an unmitigated disaster. It is also an opportunity to learn and grow. Right. Because we've broken up the other structures, which worked in, in, often quite well, but have also limited us. And all of a sudden, 
were open to other possibilities. So you think of Mandela, who was a you know very strong, tough, smart leader, but then the compassion grew in him through his own suffering. He could then feel the compassion of the other prisoners and ultimately of everyone in South Africa, including his enemies. Right. And so that's what happens. And if we just need to understand that that's possible for us, it'll help us deal so much better with the adversity that comes. And also it will open us to all these other possibilities in our lives that we may never have dreamed of before. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's obviously a, a slippery slope and I'm not advocating bad parenting, but I often, you know, have these conversations with, with my friends and I'm like, clearly we're going to in some ways underserve, mess up our children, terrible things are going to happen. And absent that, what are they going to work on? <laughs> well... Fortunately or unfortunately, there will be plenty of things. Yeah, it will happen. Uh, what they're going to part of what they're going to be working on is the separation from you. Right. They've been in a good, and I think this is part of what's happening with kids. I see this uh, some with my sixteen-year-old son, who's primarily lived with his mother and grew up with very, very close to her. Now he's away from her, and that whole transition has been very difficult, but ultimately also very maturing and very good for him and helping to open him to a much wider world. So it's going to come. You yeah. don't have to worry. No. Take, take as good care of your kids as, as you, you can, can. <laughs> because that will help equip them for, for whatever is going to come, for whatever trauma, whatever challenge, whatever tragedy is going to come to their lives. They will meet it much better and they will grow through it more easily if they have that firm foundation. Right. Let's talk first about soft belly meditation, which is so, such an interesting one because as I was trying to do it while reading the book, I think like many girls, particularly any girl who went to ballet, it is very, I mean, my stomach is soft two kids later, but it's very <laughs> hard for me <laughs> to relax my stomach. I have yeah. such a, I think so many women in particular have this like, uh, like you just want to clench which I think is part of it, right? So what can you explain what soft belly breathing is and, and what it does? Well, if you, if you think about the way uh, babies breathe, you watch them breathe, their, their tummy goes up and down. They're doing soft belly breathing. This is the natural way to breathe. It's uh, the, the way I teach it. And, you know, we'll do a little bit here for a minute or two. It's just sitting comfortably and breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Don't do this with our bellies soft and relaxed, focusing on the breath, focusing on the words soft as we breathe in and belly as we breathe out, and focusing on the belly being soft and relaxed. And what that does is it brings more air into the bottom of the lungs where there's better oxygen exchange and oxygen feeds all the cells in our bodies. It also helps to activate the vagus nerve. That's V-A-G-U-S. Vagus means, and people who are listening to us, they can keep breathing slowly and deeply as they're listening. The, the vagus nerve is the antidote to the fight or flight response. So it lowers blood pressure, slows heart rate, relaxes the big muscles in our bodies that get tensed when we're under stress. It improves digestion and it quiets activity in the parts of our brain responsible for fear and anger, particularly a part of the emotional brain called the amygdala, A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. -A -A. And 
it helps to activate breathing slowly and deeply like this with our belly soft and relaxed helps to activate areas in the frontal cortex, frontal part of our cerebral cortex, responsible for judgment and self-awareness and compassion mm-hmm. and connection with others. So this is, this is a basic, it's a fundamental technique for reversing the stress that we, just about all of us in this modern world, live with. If you walk into an office and you see people sitting at their computers, uh, sometimes I wonder, are they actually alive? Because there's so little movement, and yeah. the breath is very shallow, it's in the chest, and as you suggest, the belly is tight and tense. So this is reversing this learned process, whether we've learned it in order to look better or whether we've learned it unconsciously because we're tense and we're holding ourselves rigid. It's to reverse this and open us up to relaxation. Now, some people don't like to say soft belly. That's too fraught for them. (laughs) Uh, So uh, the kids on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, the Lakota Indian children, they came up with breathing in, they say, smelling roses. And when they breathe out, they say, blowing out candles. So whatever, whatever words suit you, but it's important to feel that belly relaxing. And it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It just changes the way we sit and feel, the way we relate to other people. We do soft belly breathing at the beginning of every one of our staff meetings at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. It's to bring us into a relaxed moment-to-moment awareness, which is the essence of meditation. Yeah. And then let's talk about shaking and dancing, which I think I, I've had some physical and doing some trauma work I've had physical release, which was like a very new experience for me, but also very much. And and then once I had that first major physical release, I can, I'll find myself reading something and being triggered and having a physical release. So with shaking and dancing, it's like the idea is that some, this trauma is stored in our bodies. Exactly. I mean, essentially when we're traumatized, there are two basic biological reactions that, that happen to us. The first is the fight or flight reaction. Whether it's a psychological or physical trauma or relationship trauma, it's as if we're being threatened by a predator. And so the heart races, blood pressure goes up, muscles get tense and tight, we become irritable, have difficulty focusing except on that predatory event. And afterwards, we're preoccupied with that traumatic event, whatever it may be. The other response is the freeze response which happens when the trauma feels both overwhelming and inescapable. So that's often true of trauma we've experienced in childhood, especially if it's our parents who are doing it to us. We can't get away. We're Mm -hmm. there with them. Also experience when we're assaulted or raped Mm -hmm. and we're not able to do anything and we, you know, we, it's a protective mechanism like fight or flight. It's life-saving, but when it continues long after the trauma is over, we're shut down emotionally. We can't relate to other people. So technique like shaking and dancing, doing five or six minutes of shaking the body while standing up, and then a couple minutes of pause, and then five minutes or so of just letting ourselves move to music, it breaks up those fixed physical and emotional patterns and does allow the emotions that have been stored in the body and suppressed to begin to come out. 
They begin to come out when we're shaking. And then when we're dancing afterwards, there's a sense of freedom and a mm -hmm. sense of joy. So it's a beautiful meditation. It's one of the first ones that I use with people. It's one of the ones I use myself very, very often if I'm going through a difficult time. And uh, it's beautifully effective and easy to learn and easy to use on your own. And there's really no way to do it. <laughs> just privately. <laughs> you can do it privately. You can do it with a lot. I've done it with a thousand people at a time. Yeah. It's, uh, and when we're doing it with a lot of people, I tell everybody to close their eyes so you're not looking around and comparing yourself to, <laughs> oh, she's so good at shaking. I could never do that. Or look at me. I'm doing so beautifully. So, yeah, it's important. This is just for you, just for each person who's doing it. And when emotions come up in that context, is it, is it that you're literally just getting them out of your body or is it important to actually have sort of a mental inventory of what you're feeling and addressing it? Or is it just about the physical release? You know, I think it's different at different times. Sometimes in the beginning, it's just bringing it up and bringing it out of the body and getting some release. But as time goes on, we become aware of what it's all about and we find a context for it. One of the stories that I that I tell in the book is about, and because it very touched me very much, is I was working with nursing students in Haiti after the earthquake. It was about a year after the earthquake. And I don't know if you remember, there were about 90 nursing students who were killed in the earthquake. Mm -hmm. And these girls, eight, 17, 18, 19-year-old girls, were the sisters, literally the biological sisters, or the good friends of the 90 girls who were killed. And I was doing a workshop for them and teaching them about fight or flight and soft belly and doing some other things with them. And then after a couple hours, I got them up shaking and dancing. And within two minutes of shaking, standing up with their feet firmly planted and just shaking their whole bodies from the feet up through the knees and shoulders, half the girls were weeping. Mm. And then we paused, and in those moments of just standing and breathing, even more girls started crying. Mm. And then the dance music, and I was using Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. The dance music came on, and the girls were weeping, and they were laughing, and they were dancing. Mm. And afterwards, uh, they said to me, uh, this is the first time we've been able to cry since the earthquake. We've had to be so strong. We're nurses. We're supposed to be strong. I'll start crying, as mm -hmm. I tell you. Had to be strong for our little brothers and sisters, for our parents and our grandparents. We haven't allowed ourselves to cry. It felt so good. Mm -hmm. And then others said, and we haven't allowed ourselves to laugh either. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is when you suppress one emotion, all the emotions tend to be suppressed. And that felt so good. And we haven't danced. This is the first time we've danced. We're teenage girls. We haven't danced in a year. And then one of them said to me, she said, and Jim, we love Bob, Bob Marley, but we are Haitian girls and we have wonderful Haitian music. <laughs> so I, I said, great, tell me what music, Haitian music from now on in Haiti, I use Haitian music. But they were coming alive. Yeah. And they, for them in this first stage, it was just getting in touch with those emotions and becoming free again and not being so shut down. Yeah, so that's interesting. So it is a shutdown. You're muting everything by not feeling your feelings. Exactly. You don't get to selectively choose. Exactly. So you can't cry, you can't laugh, you're just held in, you're just kind of taking care of business. But 
you're not taking care of yourself. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. We'll get back to Dr. James Gordon in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge, or maybe it's just a scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. And if you're in need of some travel inspiration along the way, head to goop.com and check out the Montecito Travel Guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called InGoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with InGoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders, and there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically. We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is, coincidentally, my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an InGoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Dr. James Gordon. I want to talk about one more of the meditations, and then I want to talk about sort of the internal inquiry and the body intelligence, because I think that's obviously also where the magic is. So is it chaotic? Chaotic breathing? Chaotic breathing, yes. So sort of the enforced hyperventilation? It's not hyperventilation. This is an important point. We don't (laughs) want people hyperventilating. 
<laughs> it's breathing in and out through the nose as fast and as deeply as you can. And the through the nose is crucial. If you breathe in and out through your mouth, you will hyperventilate. You may fall on the floor. Right. If you breathe in and out through your nose, you will not hyperventilate. I've done this with tens of thousands of people all over the world. Nobody's hyperventilated. And it's not only breathing in and out as fast as you can, it's raising your arms up like you're a bird taking off and bringing them down to bringing your elbows down to your side like a chicken flapping its wings and doing it as fast and as deep as you possibly can. And the idea is in terms of the chaos it's that you push through the point of when you want to it to the point of chaos, right? Where you're you, like I just want to stop doing this. You push through the pain, you push through the discomfort, you push through all those curses at the person who suggested this to you in the first place. You push through physical pain unless there's a real biological reason to pay attention to that pain. I started doing this in my in my mid-30s, and I'd have terrible chest pain. I think, oh, I'm having a heart attack. But I knew I wasn't having a heart attack. That was my fear. Mm -hmm. That was the tightness in my chest. So you push through it. And then sometimes what happens is a, a, a kind of miracle happens, and you're doing it even faster and deeper, but there's no effort involved. It's like it is doing you, the breathing. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but it's moving through, once again, bringing up emotions that have been shut down, uh, bringing energy to bodies that have been depleted by trauma or by depression or by held-in anger. And it's just opening us up and giving us a new sense of freedom. Now, with, with, the, with the chaotic breathing, you shouldn't raise your arms up and bring them down to the side as so vigorously if you have a shoulder that dislocates or if you have very high blood pressure or recent injury to your neck or head or metastases or if you're pregnant. Okay. Don't then you should just do the fast breathing without all the extra muscular uh, effort. Yeah. But and still can be that can be very helpful. And so the other and I and I love obviously hearing people like you who are esteemed physicians in this field and presidential council members talk about some of the more not even woo woo but the 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 body intelligence and those conversations that you can have both with yourself and your body and also with spirit guides or you talk about it as being you can sort of think of that on on a spectrum right potentially talking to people who have passed your spirit guides or just your own subconscious right but that the treasures really the fact that we have all the answers we're just not really listening to ourselves so can you take us through some of the mechanisms for getting access to that sure body intelligence absolutely you know the the, the first thing though is for the first time on the planet all of us have access to all of these other healing traditions in, in the world. And our Western medicine is beautiful in many ways, but it's not the whole story. Right. And so what's happening is now that we have access to all these other cultures, uh, we have this wisdom that for tens of thousands of years has understood exactly what you're saying. Right. That we can consult our body. We can consult some force, whether we call it the imagination, the unconscious, the intuition, the spirit world, whatever it is, we can call it whatever we want, there are answers that are beyond the rational mind. 
So how to do this? First thing is we have to relax. We have to come into a place where we're not, you know, totally ruminating about things that are upsetting us or trying to, you know, develop charts and settle everything with our rational mind. We have to create some state of quiet. So the beginning of these techniques is usually either some kind of slow, deep breathing, like the soft belly breathing, to get into a relaxed, receptive state, or an expressive meditation, like the shaking and dancing, or the fast, deep breathing, the chaotic breathing, again, to get out of the chatter of the conscious mind and to come into that meditative place of relaxed moment-to-moment awareness. And once we're in this place, then the door is open and the sort of the table is laid for all of these techniques. One of them that I, I personally love and use all the time is, is, is using guided imagery. And the first part, the first image that I begin with once I'm in the relaxed state is I take myself to a safe or comfortable place. And I, if I'm working with other people, I suggest that they walk down a country road and that they invoke all their senses. They see and feel and hear and smell what it's like to walk down the road. And then they imagine they're in a safe or comfortable place, one that they either know well or one that just comes to them in that minute, and make themselves comfortable. So again, it's deepening that level of relaxation, that level of comfort and safety. And once they're in this place, and I usually do this with some sort of soft music accompanying the person on this journey. Once they're in that safe place, I suggest that a guide comes to them, a wise guide. And the guide uh, represents their inner knowing or their unconscious or their imagination or intuition, or some people think it's a visitor from the spirit world, however they want to conceive of it. And the guide could be a person, someone they know, an ancestor, a child, could be somebody from a book, could scripture, could be an animal, could be some kind of inanimate object. Whatever comes, welcome that guide, introduce yourself to the guide, ask the guide to introduce themselves to you, and then begin a dialogue and ask whatever questions come up. And the, the amazing thing is that the answers are so often so, so eye-opening, so uh, unexpected, so practical, so helpful. And approach the guide with whatever question you have. It could be a small question like, uh, you know, what, what should I do with the rest of my day? Or it could be a bigger one. What should I do with the rest of my life? Or how do I deal with this relationship I have that I'm having difficulty with? And so you ask your guide the questions and you wait for the response and then you keep on asking and waiting for the responses. And it unfolds often miraculously. I've seen these guides be literally life-saving for people who've been suicidal, mm-hmm. where I've done the wise guide exercise. One of the stories that I tell is of a girl in Kosovo whose sister was killed by a sniper during the war in Kosovo, and she wanted to kill herself. Mm-hmm. And I asked her to go inside and consult her wise guide, and the wise guide turned out to be her sister who had died. She wanted to kill herself because she thought there was no point in living anymore. And her sister came to her and she said, my dear sister, I love you, I treasure you, I want you to live a long and happy life. That 
that will in some way help me to redeem the death that I've had. I'm okay where I am. I want you to be okay too. And this young woman started crying and it turned completely turned her life around. Mm -hmm. And that was her inner wisdom, not me telling her anything. So this is possible. Yeah. And I've seen this happen many, many, many times. Yeah, you you do tell the story in the book of a boy whose friend was murdered, was shot by Israeli troops when they were throwing rocks at them. Similarly, I think he wanted to die, and then his friend came to him. Yes, exactly. His friend came to him. said, you'll honor me by living a long life. Don't kill yourself now. Live a long life. Get married. Be a good man. Take care of your children. And then when you get old, then you'll die and come to paradise and then you'll be there with me. That's what I want for you. And it turned him around. He stopped throwing stones at Israeli tanks. Yeah. Because he was trying to get killed. Right. And to live, to die a martyr's death. Yeah, to die a martyr's death. Exactly. And then I also loved sort of the, the body scan, the somatic experiencing of questioning your body. I find too, I know you talk about sort of uh, getting a basic understanding of anatomy so you understand sort of what you're contending with, your liver or your... But I also think it's helpful to think about it from the right side of your body, which is typically more the more masculine side and then the left side being the more feminine. Because I get a lot out of that where I, in yoga, if we're relaxing and I have an inquiry with my right side, I get yelled at frequently. <laughs> What's your right side trying to tell you? Oh, I, ha I actually had this experience on Sunday at yoga. It was very real. And I mean, I don't have to tell you that because I know you have these experiences with people all the time. But the instructor was essentially like, you know, talk to your body. He was guiding us to the right side. And like, what is your right side telling you? And my right side was essentially like, you have no boundaries and you do nothing to protect me. And I how how long are you going to continue to drive me like this? And it was really interesting. It was like a, a verbal thrashing from my right side. And it felt very conversational. Yeah. And so can you, <laughs> can you, I know in the book, people's livers yell at them. People find, you know, like the hip pain or the, I mean, how, do you think that there's an emotional component to Abs pain? Absolutely. I mean, everything and other systems of, of medicine understand, Chinese medicine, for example, understands the connection between the organs and the body and the emotions. Liver is particularly connected with anger and frustration in Chinese medicine. But each person is going to have a somewhat different dialogue, and each organ is going to mean something different to each of us depending on our experience. So what I do... The familiarity with the body is really very basic. This is not, you don't have to take a course in anatomy just to have a sense of what the organs are in the, in the abdomen and what's in the chest. And, and as you breathe deeply once again and you allow your imagination to take you to a part of your body that calls out to you and just go to whatever that part of the body is. And once you situate yourself there, you start asking, um, what am I doing here? What, what message do you have for me? And the message is often, uh, it, it's often about emotions. It's about uh, practical advice for what to do. 
both about a physical pain or physical injury, but also about whatever the emotional situation that may be connected with that part of the body. And sometimes the messages are, are, are very funny, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on you know, what's going on inside you. And what this is, the, the, the process that I take people through in the transformation, it takes a little time. It takes 10 mm-hmm. or 15 minutes to kind of accommodate yourself to your body and feel comfortable with it and be willing to go on this journey. And I guide people on the journey. And then once they go to a place, the answers are so surprising so often. It may be, may be something in the chest and the answer, you may say, what am I, what am I doing here? And then uh, the answer may come something like, well, you have to open your heart more. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, okay, what, that's nice, but what, what do you mean? And say, you know, this, this little child you have, the one who's such a, pain, such a pain to you, the one you get so tense about, and you start breathing shallowly because you're so angry at this little child, this little child needs you to open up that chest that is constricted and to feel what he is going through. And sometimes as that dialogue goes on, the adult may start crying because Mm -hmm. she starts to feel the pain that's making this child such a difficult child. And I've had this kind of thing happen to me, and it turns me around. And I see, I've I've seen this with my own son, for example. And all of a sudden, instead of being in a contest with him, I get it. I get what's going on with him, and I feel completely different. I feel much more open-hearted and much more connected to him, and it shifts. Right. But I wasn't thinking about my son when I was doing this. I was just paying attention to what was going on Mm -hmm. in my body, and then my body was telling me what yeah. I needed to attend to and what that tightness in my chest meant. Yeah, no, I've definitely had that experience. I think, too, we can be so mental, right? And, you know, I, I'm probably not unlike many people in my therapist's office where I will just, like, talk and talk and talk. And and then he's very, very often is like, okay, stop. Like, what's happening in your body? And it's only then that I can after being quiet and going inside and finding like the locus of either pain or tension that then I can actually emote. It's, it's, I can't do it. Exactly. Talking about what's going on inside us is, is very good and very important, but often what's happening is too deep for mm-hmm. words and can only be accessed by relaxing and experiencing it and letting the body talk to us. This is an ancient, ancient insight Mm -hmm. and understanding. What I've done my best to do in the transformation and in the work that we do with people is to democratize it. It's not just me, the psychiatrist or the shaman who can make this happen. Everybody can do this. Everybody can have this conversation with their body and can learn and go inside and and hear these truths. Yeah. One thing that did, which I know you don't, you might talk about it in the appendix when you talk about different therapy types, but one thing that has been helpful for me in terms of connecting to my my body and my emotions is EMDR. Mm -hmm. And is that mechanism just that it's the the pulsating is distracting your mind enough? I don't think we know exactly what the mechanism is for EMDR. Uh, I, I think it clearly helps to put us into a state of physiological balance and it seems to help us a kind of deconditioning 
in that state of balance to the traumatic memories. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think anyone's really we completely it. figured out the physiology. And I, uh, many people like you have found it very useful. The approach, what, essentially what I'm saying is the approach that I'm presenting is foundational and can be combined easily with EMDR or mm-hmm. cognitive therapy or some of the other expressive therapies, that it's not either or. Right. It's both and. Well, and the thing that's so powerful about your book is that it's essentially things you can just do for yourself. Yeah. No therapy required. No yes. co-payments. <laughs> exactly. No therapy therapists. You don't take insurance. And you can do it any time. You don't yeah. have to wait for an appointment. <laughs> I think this is really important that so much of the healing that can come to us, we can create for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Therapy can be very, very helpful as well. I, I mean, obviously, I'm a psychiatrist. I do see patients, and I believe that the connection, I know the connection can be extremely helpful. But there's so much we can do for ourselves. Yeah. When you see patients, let's say, and and they're expressing, let's say, addiction or self-harm or do you, what is the, the, where do you start? Because I know that a huge section of the book is also about diet. Do you start with the gut? Do you start just with soft belly? Where do you, where do you take them first? When I'm seeing, when someone comes to me in my practice and I'm seeing fewer patients because I'm doing more and more work with communities all over the United States and all around the world. But when someone comes to me, I spend a lot of time with them in the first session. And what they leave that first session with is uh, they've, I've taught them soft belly breathing for sure. Mm-hmm. I've often taught them an expressive meditation as well. could be shaking and dancing. And I have may have done drawings mm-hmm. with them helping them to see what to focus on the greatest problem they have, do a set of three drawings, drawing themselves, drawing themselves with their biggest problem, drawing themselves with their problem solved. So they have a a, a little more focus and a little more hope that Mm -hmm. it's possible to at least imagine a solution. And then I do give people a nutritional prescription as well. It's really important. And this has not been addressed in any other book on trauma that I know of. And it's But trauma disrupts our digestion as surely as it does our emotions and our mental functioning. And if we're going to recover most easily and fastest and best, we need to pay attention to our digestion. So so very simply, some of the recommendations are basic recommendations about healthy eating. But then beyond that, there are others because trauma... um, affects in a very significant way uh, all the organs of digestion. So the villi, the little projections into the small intestine may be damaged. We may not be absorbing nutrients as Mm -hmm. well as we should. So we need to eat in a more healthy way and we do need to supplement. And there's been research done recently on the importance of a multivitamin, multimineral supplement uh, for people who've been traumatized. We do need to pay attention to the effect that trauma and the stress, the chronic stress that follows us, can cause us to have leaky guts. Mm -hmm. So our gut may have been fine. There may have been no sensitivity to gluten or milk before the trauma. But because of the trauma, the cells, the endothelial cells that line the small intestine, they start separating. And these molecules that don't belong in our bloodstream start leaking across from our small intestine to our bloodstream. And they cause inflammation, perhaps in our brain, making us more anxious, making us more depressed. So we need to repair 
And we need to make sure, at least in the first months, that we don't eat foods. And for many people, it's foods with gluten or foods with milk protein that are likely to leak across the gut and create uh, damage in other parts of our body. We also need to replenish our microbiome, which trauma damages. So all these things need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know you've been as, you know, you are mind-body medicine, and that's what you've been preaching for decades. I feel like the culture is catching up, which must feel like frustrating in some ways, but affirming in many others. I thought that one part, too, that was incredibly fascinating, I mean, you, you talk a little bit about the placebo, I mean, the power of the mind and in, in healing, and the placebo effect for whatever reason, is maligned. It's misbranded. I, I think people assume that it means that you're gullible and stupid should you fall for the placebo instead of understanding it for what it is, which is probably our most powerful mechanism for healing. So can you talk about autogenic training? Is it autogenic training? Sure. And then and the bio dots? Because yeah. I, I need to order those. Well, let me just say a couple words about placebo. Placebo simply means... I shall please in Latin. Mm. And it's, it, it's a, about faith and hope. And it's about the faith and hope. You know, conventionally, placebo is talked about, well, there's the active pill and then there's the sugar pill. And it turns out that sugar pills, if we believe in them, are 30 to 70% as effective as active pills, for example, for pain relief. So let's find ways to mobilize that effect, not to dismiss it. Yeah. And it's even better if we can believe in ourselves and have faith in ourselves. So that's what all the techniques that I teach are about. They have specific uses and they're very effective, but each one of them also has a, a if you will, a, a meta lesson, a lesson about the lesson, which is you can do something. You can make a difference in how you feel. Now, autogenics is a, um, a, a series of phrases that were created in over, just about a hundred years ago by a German neuropsychiatrist. And they're phrases that mobilize the parasympathetic nervous system, the vagus nerve that we talked about that's responsible for us resting and digesting. And they're simply phrases that suggest that the vagus nerve get to work and do its job as the antidote to the fight or flight response. So the first of these six original phrases, autogenic phrases, and autogenic means I'm doing something to make a difference for myself, mm -hmm. is my arms are warm and heavy, I am at peace. Mm. Now, when we're in fight or flight, what happens is the blood goes to the big muscles in our body, so we can either duke it out with a, with a predator or with an aggressor, or run away. And it goes away from our hands, so our hands get cold and clammy. These autogenic phrases, this first autogenic phrase, is essentially saying, blood, go to my arms and hands and warm them up. Mm -hmm. And because of the way our brain is wired, those words create images that affect our autonomic nervous system that actually do promote warming of our arms and hands. And with that warming comes relaxation. Mm. And what we do is, and what I suggest that people do, is combine these autogenic phrases with biofeedback. And biofeedback, 
it's important to demystify it. It's not such, it's, a, it's wonderful, but it's not such a huge deal or doesn't have to be. It's feedback with signals that we can read about what's going on in our biology. And in this case, put a little dot uh, between your index finger and your thumb and the muscle there, and uh, this dot changes color with temperature. So when it's cold and your hands are tight and you're upset and you're angry or you're anxious, your hand's going to be cold, the dot's going to be yellow or brown or black. As you relax, as you say the autogenic phrases perhaps, your hand warms up, the dot becomes green or blue or purple. It's just like mood rings that mm -hmm. some, some people may remember. You know, when, you're, when you had a test coming up, the dot was yellow or brown or black. And when this guy you were interested in or this girl you were interested in came in the room, all of a sudden, oh, you felt so good. And, and the dot all of a sudden changed color and you were in a great mood and it was green or blue or purple. So using the autogenic phrases... What we can see, what people often see, is that with those phrases, it changes the color of the dot, which means you're changing the temperature in your hand, which gives us the message, you can make a difference. You, you can. can make a difference in the temperature in your body. You can create relaxation. And this is crucially important when we've been traumatized, when we're feeling depressed, if we have a chronic illness, because one of the most disabling issues is we feel helpless and hopeless. So autogenic training and yeah. biofeedback teaches us in a very concrete, observable, a material way, you're not helpless. Right. You and you can have hope that other change is also possible. And you have some power over your autonomic nervous system. Exactly. And especially in situations where you don't feel control over much, yeah. this is really important. Yeah. No, I think it's super cool. And they're called biodots, right? They're called biodots. They cost a couple pennies apiece. Okay. They're I'm going to do this. I mean, my hands are always cold, but maybe I can change that like a wizard. You touch on intergenerational trauma and sort of understanding the patterns that we're passing down. And at the same time that you, you know, when you talk to a lot of shamans or, or healers in general, they talk about how when someone heal can heal. When someone heals something, you heal it for seven generations on either side. Has that been your experience? Well, I don't know about seven generations, <laughs> but the science suggests that it goes on at least for three generations. <laughs> because we know that the trauma of grandparents can be passed on to their children, to the parents' generation, and then to the grandchildren as well. And this is called, there are what's called epigenetic changes. Mm. Epi means above in Greek. And these are changes that happen in the chromosome that affect how the genes work. So when there's severe trauma in one generation, there are changes in the chromosome that affect the genes that enable us to deal with stress. Mm. So that when we're severely traumatized, it makes us less able to deal with stress. We pass on that epigenetic change to our children and our grandchildren. And there have been animal experiments that have been done. And Rachel Yehuda, who's a professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, has studied Holocaust survivors and has seen these kinds of changes passed on to the children of Holocaust survivors and their grandchildren 
even if those grandchildren were raised apart from their parents. Mm. So it's not just the environment. It's an actual biological change that's passed on. So that's, you know, that's perhaps ominous. The good news, though, is that the techniques that I teach in the transformation can reverse those epigenetic changes, that we can once again become resilient and resistant to stress and trauma, that we can deal with things much better simply by using these basic techniques of self-care. So this is a, it's a, a sobering message uh, to understand that trauma can be passed on, but it's also very useful because, you, you know, we may wonder, well, why do I feel this way? Why am I so insecure? There's nothing in my life mm-hmm. that makes me so insecure. But then you look at the lives of your parents and your grandparents, and maybe there's very good reason, and maybe some of that vulnerability, that insecurity has been passed on to you. So you become aware of it, and then you also become aware, hopefully, of the fact that you can do something about that insecurity and yeah. reverse those changes. So interesting because I'm a chronic hyperventilator, which is, you know, I overbreathe. I have plenty of oxygen, but I have the sensation that I don't have enough oxygen. And so when I get tired and I drink too much coffee and I get stressed, I feel like I can't take a deep breath and it will last for many weeks. And my mother does it, although I don't know that she does it anymore. And my aunt does it. Mm. And so, and I've noticed that my oldest son, six, is starting to exhibit weird breathing patterns. And I always thought that my mom must have modeled it for me as a child physically and that that's how I picked it up. But so it's interesting to think that it might actually just be a genetic. It's possible. And you can likely reverse it. You might want to do the chaotic breathing. I need to do the chaotic breathing. I knew you were going to say that. It's, I read about it and it filled me with fear. I'm not going to lie. But you under, but you got it. You got that. Maybe you should do it. Right? Even though it's kind of scary. Yeah. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. James Gordon. For more on Dr. Gordon, check out a copy of his book, The Transformation, out now. You can also visit drjamesgordonmd.com. That's Dr. James Gordon, MD. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. How do you handle it, or did you handle it, when those closest to you in your life aren't supportive of your journey into a more natural and holistic lifestyle? I've learned so much from the podcast, and I'm always eager, too eager perhaps, to share what I've learned. But it's also alienating some people, says Amanda. Amanda, welcome to my whole trajectory here at (laughs) goop.com. It's a very interesting question. You know, I think that normally when, if you're passionate about something and people, and you talk about it and people have a lot of resistance about what you're passionate about, it usually says a lot more about them than about whatever it is you're passionate about. I always find that, you know, if something is unfamiliar to people and they approach it with curiosity instead of judgment, those are really always the kind of people that I kind of orient towards spending time with, people who have genuine curiosity about something and open-mindedness. I have a really hard time with people who judge things before they're even educated or have all of the information. 
So, you know, in my life, I guess I just tend not to hang out with those people as much. And I'm always happy for somebody to push back or to get into a debate about something. I actually think that's interesting, but judgment in and of itself or resistance is just boring. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.